Buddies. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Thank you for the Outstanding Ohio Show. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Hello. Thank you, Ryan and Sawyer, for that wonderful introduction. This is indeed the Outstanding Ohioan Show, and this is episode 54. Could have a little different twist on this episode today. Uh, in this episode, I'm being interviewed by one of my staff teammates at the Miami University Rec Center, Angus McLeod, and we talked about a whole smorgasbord of topics related to leadership and personal philosophy and talking about the recreation industry. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This is episode 56. And today my guest is Heather Schumacher, who is the author of two wonderful children's books. Uh, Most recently, It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, Renegade Rules for Raising Confident and Creative Kids, and It's Okay Not to Share, and Other Renegade Rules for Raising Competent and Compassionate Kids. Heather, quite provocative titles, and I look forward to hearing about that. Um, Heather, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. If you could, uh, this show is tailored to share with the audience people that uh, have Ohio connections. Can you share with the audience your connection to the state of Ohio? Well, I was born there. I lived there for the first 20 years or so. Um, And my connection with these books is that these books are inspired by a preschool located in Columbus, Ohio. So there's lots of Ohio connections here. And I wanted to ask you that right at the beginning because you referenced that uh, in everything I've seen and heard. Can you talk about the School for Young Children and how you were involved with that and what what their methodologies and philosophies were? Yes, well, they're still alive and well, so their, their philosophies are, are still going on um, in Columbus. But I went to that school as a four-year-old and a five-year-old, and I never really left because my mother was a teacher at the school for 40 years. And, um, in fact, one recently was awarded um, Ohio um, Educator of the Year for the preschool age. Um, So there's more Ohio connections. But this school is a little unorthodox. And the reason I say never left is when your your family is um, connected to a school like that. I was back in the classroom or volunteering or visiting. And so I, I did really never leave my preschool. And it became the inspiration for these books, which um, have attracted interest uh, way beyond Ohio. I was just in um, Alberta, Canada last week um, talking to a huge conference about the ideas from this school. So it's really a testament to uh, two women who, back in the year I was born, 1969, decided to set up a school for children that was really based on children's rights instead of a bunch of rules. And they were thinking of what would a young child really need to have their needs met when they walk into a preschool classroom. And everything evolved from there. So just to give you a taste of how unorthodox some of it is, they at this school they give children boxing gloves and allow them to punch each other <laughs> during the school day and they don't force them to share their toys with other kids but even though this seems maybe a little bit um, different than how other people approach things it produces um, children with amazing skills in um, conflict mediation they're little diplomats and they're very good at sorting through problems directly with their peers 
um, and also um, extremely good emotional intelligence and social skills. So these kids who graduate from this school are able to cope with what life throws at them in the years to come. It's such a neat methodology, and I wanted to ask you, was it something that you've always appreciated as you were growing up, or was it more when you became an adult and you started thinking and reflecting that you recognized the uniqueness of the school environment? Yeah, I think both, really. Um, growing up, nearly every night I would hear um, at the dinner table my parents talking about education, and my dad is a, um, also a teacher but a professor at Ohio State University and just retired from there. And one thing he would mention is that um, he wished that his colleagues or people that he met in his work life um, had gone to the school for young children. In other words, that their emotional skills, anger management, uh, ability to sort through conflicts was not at the level of some of the two-year-olds and three-year-olds and four-year-olds and five-year-olds that my mother was working with and the skills that she was instilling in these kids and in their parents. So I, I grew up knowing that not everybody had gone to SYC, as we call it, and that not everybody had those skills, either from their families or from their, their preschools. So in that way, I knew it, it was unique, but I also, when I became an adult, and I had children of my own. I looked around for preschool for my oldest, you know, when my kids reached preschool age. And I sort of expected to find a school rather like this in, um, in my local area. And I looked at several schools and realized, oh, my goodness, there were a lot more tables and chairs and, and academics. And, and there certainly were no boxing gloves anywhere to be seen. <laughs> so I got a bit of a wake-up call that, yes, this is extremely... Uh, unique place and that it was time to share the philosophy because everyone can benefit from it. Well, that's really neat. Uh, so I wanted to ask you that because uh, I, I've got two young children as well. And uh, you, you've referenced uh, in your, in your books, you've referenced people like Lenore. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. Scal Lenore Skenazy. Skenazy. Yeah. Uh, Peter Gray. Uh, the Conscious Dis Discipline with Becky Bailey. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, and there's all, there's all sorts of people that are looking for this kind of experience, and I know you reference it in your books that I've read. How, how did you decide to raise your children to that point? You were looking for schools that, that had that kind of environment. Um, it, it sounds like, at least from what I read, you did set, you have sent your kids to school, so... How, how did you how did you decide on that choice? How did I decide what where to send them? Right versus um, homeschooling or unschooling or or, or different right. things that are there. Well, I think the reason that I wrote the books is because not everybody lives down the street from a school like the School for Young Children in Columbus, so we can't all just sign them up and and, and send them there. And so the books are trying to provide that information without having that school right down the street. But when I found myself in the same situation, I could certainly use these philosophies in my own family. Um, but as far as finding them a good spot to be in um, either a preschool program or something similar, uh, it, it was a bit of a search. And we ended up... Um, uh, with a home daycare provider who, you know, had a few kids in her home and had many of these philosophies, which a lot of it has to do with just 
understanding that children need huge amounts of, of free playtime where they're not being scheduled and not being at these young ages um, having Spanish and German math and all these other subjects at very young ages. So they have huge blocks of time to do the kind of work they need to do, which is play. So we found that um, fit where we lived. The best option was um, a woman who had a home daycare out of her home and had many of these philosophies. And that's something that many people can find, even if they can't find a preschool just like this in their local area. Something, Heather, that struck me on your website was you're, you've got an interesting educational background. You've had you, you, you posted some, some of the jobs that you've had throughout your life, uh, part-time and full-time, and, and you've had some unique travel experiences. Could you briefly share those with the audience and how those impacted you? It is a bit eclectic. Um, I, I think besides more traditional education in college and graduate school, I also, I've been a milkmaid, I've been a llama trekker, and I sorted garbage in Antarctica down at the South Pole, um, among other things. So yes, it's, it's a bit of a mix. Um, I think the, the skills we're talking about in the It's Okay Not to Share books are really the same wherever you go. I mean, even down at the ends of the earth in Antarctica, there's emotions and conflicts that come up among adults that are the same skills that um, we're trying to instill in the children in the preschool years. So, um, yes, there's there's lots of differences around the world, but fundamentally these, these uh, essential human life skills, the ability to deal with conflict and deal with difficult emotions, are there wherever you go. That, that's certainly true, and you, you've made an interesting point a few times. When, I, when I've been reading some of these books, it, it's amazing. It's, it's not just the application to your children. It's the application to yourself. It's the application to the relationships with your spouse and, and other people in your life. It's, a, it's, it's relationships that you have with your coworkers and in, in leadership positions and those kind of things. So it, it, it's amazing, the transference, and it really speaks, at least in my mind, that kids are just little adults, and we're, we're all the same, and, and we have a lot of the same needs, wants, and desires uh, across the board. And it, 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 they're great tools for family raising, but they're great tools throughout your life. Yeah, thanks for that. I, I find many people say they, they use a lot of these ideas on their college-age children or on their spouse or on their coworkers. Um, but I do want to point out... Um, that there are quite a few things about young children that just tend to baffle adults. And even though we all have same emotions, you know, we all feel jealousy and sorrow and, and, and grief and um, anger and all these different feelings, when you're a three-year-old or a four-year-old, you tend to express things and, and have a different need for play than, than maybe an adult would. So, for example... Um, with some of the play that children do that makes us uncomfortable. I have a whole chapter about um, weapon play or um, boys can wear tutus, so boys dressing up in girls' clothes, and all kinds of types of play that kids are exploring. Some of the things that kids may, may do that, that puzzle us um, are really different than adult needs. I mean, a lot of kids have, an, have a desperate need to go dig in mud puddles, and, or they have needs to put on a Superman cape and dash around the room. So even though we have a lot of the same human traits, 
we also have different needs. And I think uh, a big part about raising young children and working with young kids is understanding what their needs are, how those needs sometimes differ from adults. For example, the need to move their bodies. They have a huge need to move their bodies. And often we count this as misbehavior, um, especially with some of the boy children or kids with high energy, that we're always getting them in trouble or getting them in trouble for um, pushing and shoving each other when actually they're trying to make friends. So some of the book is about deciphering what are these little people up to and how can we support them best without thinking that they're disobeying us or, or getting in trouble all the time. And in some ways, they're just like us. They have the same sorts of feelings. Thanks for the clarification. And what I did, Heather, is I wrote down some short phrases that are very intentionally very open-ended because they're, they're, they're key points in, in, in your book. So, um, But before I, before I recite those and, and ask for your thoughts, um, I, I had a, a couple questions before we go there. If you had to define what your central parenting theme or a couple themes are, what would those be? Yeah, well, one of them is, is about respect and that to respect somebody, no matter whether they're young or old, short or tall, is about understanding what their needs are. And so that's, that's a first step in order to have a good relationship. Another one um, is what I call the renegade golden rule, which is um, simply that it's okay, meaning whatever kind of play the child has chosen, it's okay if it's not hurting people or property. So whatever idea they may come up with, don't try to change it or say, that's not a sword, that's a magic wand, you know, or the, the, the dinosaurs should actually be friends with all the other dinosaurs instead of eating them up. Um, that it's, the, the play ideas are fine um, as long as it's not hurting real people and property. And another really central one, I think, has to do with the emotions, which is um, that all feelings are okay, but all behavior isn't. Okay. Something that I, I really liked about your books, Heather, is you have you you, you tell stories and, and you and, and you have you have your viewpoint on on topics, some of which we're going to cover here in a moment. But what I what I really liked is you have a toolbox, or you, you call it a toolbox. You have words to say and words to avoid, and I really appreciated that because that's something that a lot of us, when you're reading something, it's it might be anecdotal for you, but it's still theory for me. But then, how can I apply it? Uh, it was really a really a valuable uh, tool that you that you put in the book. So I greatly appreciate that. Well, good. Yeah, I I get frustrated with uh, parenting books that assume you have a lot of time as a parent, <laughs> and assume that you can just dig through the book. So I wanted to make sure that uh, parents could just go to a certain page and get a refresher. Oh, yeah, this is something I can pull out of my pocket and say when I, when, I, when I don't know what to say, when I have this situation with my child. And so I tried to make it very easy to remember and very accessible because, face it, parents don't have a lot of time. They're busy with kids and busy with jobs. Right. Okay, so I wrote, I wrote down some short phrases, and, and I was hoping you could go a little bit deeper from, from your book and what, what you meant by that. Sharing, you, it's, you, it's obviously one of the book titles. Uh, talk about the sharing because a lot of parents feel like kids should always be sharing when other people, when other kids want to play with them. Right. Well, sharing is 
a, is a big topic, and we often ask kids to share um, even when, as soon as they can walk, you know, at very early ages. And and what we typically do, because um, we're trying to help instill generosity and kindness and awareness of others and all these good social skills and moral development, but the way we often go about it actually delays this natural generosity. And here's what I mean. If we, um, if we say... Um, You've had that a long time. You know, you've been playing with that truck a long time. It'd be nice and share with your friend. Um, or five more minutes, I'm going to set the timer, and then it's Joey's turn. When we, in, um, that's what I would call forced sharing, where the adult decides how long is enough, and you take it out of the child's hands when they're still busy using it. And when you get something taken away from you, it feels terrible. You know, let's say you're, you're reading a book and someone grabs it out of your hand and says, you've been reading this a long time. You know, um, it's, there's a lot that goes into when we're ready to share something. And for a young child, they, they um, do best with taking turns and waiting till they're all done. So time is very, um, it's, it floats around in the child's mind. So five minutes doesn't mean anything to them. When they're done, they're done. And you've seen this. If a child's done, they just drop the toy and walk away and move mm -hmm. on to the next thing. So it's that moment when you remind them. I remember Joey was waiting. He really wanted to play that with that when you were done and help the child go find Joey and give him the truck. And then you see inside the body um, of the child this, this rush of, of joy, of good feeling. That's the rush of, of the golden glow of generosity that coming from the inside, and the child wants to repeat that feeling, because it doesn't feel terrible. Then it feels great to be kind to someone and remember them and share with them and give them joy. So that's the sort of thing that will help. And then the kids are more likely to share on their own, because they re their body remembers how good it felt, their mind remembers how good it felt, and they're going to want to share even when adults aren't watching. But kids who are forced to share will often certainly not share when an adult isn't watching because it's always felt terrible to them. Um, but another aspect of that is the waiting child, the child who is not getting instant gratification. You know, they, they want the toy. They say, oh, he's not sharing, but they have to wait until she's done. That, that teaches such um, incredible life skills being able to have delayed gratification and coping with frustration and anger and jealousy, which are difficult emotions to cope with, and learning that you can cope with them and cope with them in appropriate ways um, and not manipulate somebody by saying he's not sharing and getting the adult to swoop in and take care of your, your, your wish for you. Mm -hmm. So it helps both kids um, incredibly with, with emotions and conflict skills and standing up for themselves. Right. Okay. Next one I had were was street smarts and stranger danger. Yeah, that's in the, the second book. It's okay to go up the slide. Um, stranger danger is something that that parents, of course, are, are certainly aware of, and often um, so much aware that they, they get petrified. Um, and they teach kids again as, as early as they can talk and walk to be scared of or to not talk to strangers. I have a chapter saying, let your kids talk to strangers. And here's why. is because it's actually safer that way. Um, for one thing, we confuse kids, and they don't know what a stranger is exactly. They think as soon as they learn the person's name that they're no 
longer a stranger, for example, or young children in these preschool ages might think a stranger is somebody with a hat or somebody with a beard, or it, it's very confusing in their mind who is a stranger, who isn't. Um, but more than that, it's if we're, um, it's more likely the things that we're worried about, the serious harm that can come to kids, is more likely to happen from people the child knows. Um, it's it's unfortunate, but it's it's just the truth. The, the family members, the neighbors, the friends, the acquaintances are much more likely to seriously hurt a child um, than than the strangers. The strangers are much more likely to be the helpers, whether they're they're police officers or. Um, passers-by helping out to help a child who's lost or scared or hurt. Um, and so, so statistically, it's much, uh, it, it teaches the child the wrong message. It teaches anybody you know is okay and you can trust them. Whereas what we need to be teaching kids is basic body safety. If it doesn't feel good, it isn't good. You know, that icky feeling to trust their gut. If something makes your stomach feel icky, then stop and get away. Um, all that basic body safety, and then also giving them a chance to develop judgment so that if by interacting with the clerk at the grocery store or somebody at the library or someone walking down the street, having a chance to interact with people is what helps develop and hone these instincts, their, their survival instincts. And uh, the more kids practice with it and develop what's known as street smarts, um, the better they are at, at judging real danger. Great. Next one, calendars and clocks. <laughs> calendars and clocks. You picked one of my favorite ones. <laughs> um, in early um, childhood programs, there is invariably a very enormous calendar on the wall. Um, and often at a circle time, the, the teacher or the leader of the program will go through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and talk about the date and talk about the weather and, and all these sorts of things. And it's a waste of the kids' time. Um, they, at these ages, they don't even develop this sort of, um, in their brains, in, in brain development, they don't even develop this concept of long periods of time until closer to age six or seven. So drilling it at age two, three, four, and five is, is, is it's just miseducation. It's teaching the wrong things at the wrong time. Um, and kids have so much to learn at these ages. So it's much better use of their time if we didn't take it up with calendar time and instead let them play and, and have conflicts and experience how to get out of those conflicts. Um, that's so much more valuable learning. And as for you know the weather and everything, to me, the weather's only relevant if children are outside in it. So if it's raining, they go outside and see what the rain is like. Um, you don't see kids sitting around talking about the weather to each other. You just don't <laughs> see it. Right. Okay. Next one, homework. Ah. <laughs> yeah, well, America at this point in time seems to have an obsession about homework and the belief that the earlier the better – um, both for teaching, reading, and writing, and the earlier the better for establishing habits of homework is, is the key to success. Um, and I, I disagree with that. Um, homework is becoming common in kindergarten, and parents are even demanding it in preschool if the teacher doesn't provide it. Um, 
research has shown, and this is not just one study, it's a comprehensive review of 180 different research studies, that homework benefits are highly age dependent. And there's some benefit in high school, if it's not too much, statistically barely any significance at all in middle school, and no correlation between time spent on homework and academic achievement in elementary school. So in elementary school, it doesn't have that impact that people are hoping for. Um, and instead, it does turn kids away from school. There's a lot of um, the same research shows that negative attitudes towards school and learning spike when there's homework at these early ages. So the earlier, the worse when it comes for homework. And um, our family personally bans homework, and I explain in the book a whole section about options that you can take, ways you can be respectful, communicating with the teachers. Um, a lot of teachers, especially the ones who've been around for a while, understand that this is not the most helpful way of, of um, learning for this age. And it tends to be the newer teachers who assign the most homework. Right. Uh, the next one is near and dear to my heart. I'm a recreation staff member at Miami University. Talk about recess. Ah, recess, yes. <laughs> well, uh, re recess is a bit under attack these days. You know, when I was growing up in Columbus, we had three recesses a day, morning, afternoon, and lunch recess. Um, and that was good. It felt like the right amount as, as an elementary school student. Today, um, many schools in this country do not have any recesses at all um, for kids as young as kindergarten. Um, and children need to use their bodies. They need to, they need to move. They get in trouble at school when they don't move their bodies. And the answer to that is moving their bodies and moving it in a way they want to. It's not the same as gym class. Um, as a child explained to me, uh, what's the difference between gym class and, and recess? Well, in gym, the teacher tells you what to do and you can't be with your friends. It's a totally different thing. And I mention that because some schools are um, substituting gym class over obesity concerns rather than, um, and they're getting writ in place of recess. But recess is a break from being told what to do. So a lot of it's physical movement, but for some kids, it's standing around or sitting around and chatting with friends. So it's not always about movement. It's about being yourself, having a break from being told what to do all the time by adults. And kids need this desperately. They need it for their emotional stability and health. They need it so they're not stressed, but they also need it to learn and focus in school. And they've done all kinds of studies that support this. But for example, just one of the many says that children with ADHD attention deficit disorders, they benefit by having more recess. Their brains are able to focus, their memory skills, their learning, their problem solving. So their, their brain um, focus and skills are able uh, to be better after having recess. So in order to come back to the classroom and focus on academics, they absolutely need recess. Kind of, kind of marrying the last two topics, can you talk about what I would call informal reading? Yeah, explain what you mean by informal uh, reading. You, you reference in the book reading for pleasure rather than assigned reading or adult-dictated reading. Yes. Well, I think the key word is pleasure there. Um, you know, Kids should be able to find joy, especially in these early ages, in books and stories. So 
um, learning to read can be a, a struggle or it can um, it can be fun. It depends on the child. But if a child doesn't, um, sometimes kids are assigned to read at home. And I think reading is much better use, um, than, than homework in an elementary school child's life. But still it needs to have joy and pleasure in it. So if a child comes home from school, you know, five-year-old, an eight-year-old, whatever age, come home from school and is tired and doesn't, and at the end of the day doesn't want to go through the mental effort of reading herself, it's, it's wonderful to have the adult or an older sibling or someone read to them. Reading aloud is a wonderful way to keep the joy in the stories. Um, or having the child choose a book. You know, if they want to read Captain Underpants, fine. It gives them pleasure. It doesn't matter that it's not high literature at every moment. So make sure that the choice of reading is something the child likes or just not have them do the reading at all. Read aloud to them because reading aloud is so key and it's part of helping a child learn to read because it develops vocabulary and context so that when they do read, they have some of those skills already. Okay. Next one, technology temptation. Well, we could talk about, we, we call it in our house screen time, and it, it basically means anything, whether it's applications on a phone, on a phone an iPad, or, or television, or a computer. Right. So I guess well, screen time, if yeah. you could. Well, so in my second book, It's Okay to Go Up the Side, I, I have a section about technology, and part of it is about screen time and how we can... Um, provide some healthy guidelines for kids. And the other chapter is really about adult use of screens. Right. Because face it, they see us with our nose in that little device way too much. And they see us struggling to provide healthy boundaries of when we put that thing away and when we don't bring it to the table at dinner and when we, you know, and when we're fully present with them. So I think when we're talking about screen time, we, especially with young children, we really need to be aware of our own use of it because we're modeling. Just the way we don't sit down at breakfast and stuff our face with chocolate cake, at least not every morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we try to model nutrition. We try to model manners. We try to model all sorts of good life habits. And we have to remember that technology is one of those good life habits we have to model. It's a tool. How do we use it as adults? And then how can we help our children establish healthy boundaries so that they have a full and rich life as well? So that's a huge thing with screen time. Um, and with screen time of the kids themselves, the younger they are, the less they need it. You know, um, using a computer is not that hard. Um, we as adults learn to do it as adults. <laughs> they don't need to get ahead in the world and, and start using a device super early. The, the skills they need to use as preschoolers, the young children, um, and even into early elementary school, most of the skills that they really need to build that are tricky are the social skills, the emotional skills, the physical skills, all the real-life interaction skills. And screens have many wonderful things. So using them, finding ways to establish healthy boundaries in your household. And I go through all kinds of ideas in the book for that. Okay. Uh, Next one I wanted to ask you about is, it's a little longer than a short phrase, is children evaluating a situation on their own versus parent intervention. Yeah. Now, a 
Are you talking about some of the ideas about risk, for example? Risk and also when there's when, when parents see what they perceive as conflict between children playing on the playground, for example, and then <laughs> trying to get par- parents having that feeling that they need to step in versus letting them, giving them the, the children the tools to resolve it on their own. Yes. Well, you know, a lot of kids don't have those tools to resolve it, um, at least healthy tools. So I think it's important to um, continually model and give your kids conflict mediation tools and so that they are equipped with something other than their fists because kids will find a way to get themselves out of a situation. But what we'd like to do is, is give them some things to lean on that they can use um, that are really effective. So, for example, a basic um, tool that kids need to know and have uh, 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 taught to them through modeling and through personal experience is just setting boundaries and saying when you don't like something, recognizing you don't like it and speaking up about it. That is a very, and speaking up to the person, particularly a, a ch- another child that did something rather than going off and saying, mom, you know, he won't, blah, 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 or <laughs> teacher, she's being mean. So that's the, that's the, that shows me that a kid is not confident dealing with her own conflicts if she's running off for an adult to help on any little thing. But they often don't have these skills, so we need to help them. And one is just if you notice their face is changed, you can say, um, it looks like it looks like you're, you don't like something that's happening. What What is he doing that you don't like? What's going on that you don't like? And by making an observation about what you see in their body language, they can say, well, I don't like it that you splashed water on me, or I don't like... You knocked over my tower, and and have and remind them to tell. Oh, you don't like something that that um, Sarah just did. Well, tell her. So it's a reminder that you've got to tell that person directly, and then you can be there for moral support. But it's trying to get them to be able to do that themselves by giving them those tools. Um, right. And the second part of your question was about risk and mm-hmm. um, really about letting them experience and take some physical risks, some social risks, like asking somebody else to play and maybe being rejected, um, and, and all those sorts of emotional risks, being scared, um, maybe having a, a negative feeling, allowing them to experience those things and, and get used to um, judging what their body can do a bit on their own without you setting all the rules and telling them. Right. One of the sections I, I really liked in, in your most recent book was talking about issues of equity and fairness. As adults, we commonly call them race, class, and gender differences. Can you speak to productive ways to, because you, you mentioned that children are very observant about differences, and, 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 you, and you shared some strategies on how to articulate the talk about those differences with the children and make it a productive discussion yeah i have a chapter called share unfair history um and really i think this is tapping into children children's natural sense of justice children are very just creatures of course they often are me 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 at the same time but so are we all 
And I think their their big rallying cry that you hear kids say is, that's not fair. You know, it happens if somebody gets an extra chocolate chip on their cookie. (laughs) It happens with all kinds of things. But that's not fair. And I think that that is, is a huge part of young kids that we can tap into to help them understand um, all kinds of larger issues about unfairness in life. Um, and to talk about big issues. You know, you can talk about huge issues like war and refugees and homeless and, and racial issues and slavery and all kinds of huge, enormous issues with very young children. Um, sometimes you just need to ask them, um, you know, what is it you want to know so that you're not giving them a college-level course on something when they're just three years old. You have to be at their level. But they can understand fair and um, not fair. And they often um, – the, my basic philosophy here is if a child is old enough to ask, she's old enough to get an honest answer. And it's, they will notice differences, and it's always better to talk than not talk about it. Uh, another section you, you talked about helping children learn about what I would call boundaries of power. Yes. Um, which part were you thinking of for that? <sighs> so much. Some of it was interaction with other kids. So much of it was. Some of it was interacting with with other adults. Some of it was just testing the the limits of what they can do and can't do on their own and and how important that is for kids to learn that. Yeah, it's all about boundaries and limits and respecting other people's boundaries and limits. I think this interweaves through all the books in many different topics. So, for example, there's a chapter called It's Okay Not to Kiss Grandma. There's a boundary (laughs) setting there. You know, maybe Grandma has heavy perfume, or maybe she has itchy whiskers on her chin, or maybe she does slobbery kisses. I mean, the kids are worried about a lot of things. And to be able to help a child set a boundary, even from a very loving relative, to say, I don't want that right now. You can give me a hug. And... Um, that's one example of setting a boundary. Another is, you know, the basic conflict, you took my toy. I didn't like it when you took that, um, you know, striped zebra. I was still playing with it. That's setting a boundary and learning to stand up for yourself. And kids can do this as young as two. Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned you have a very eclectic background. You you're not just an author. You've, you've got a great blog. You've, you've written these two great books. But could you talk about some of your other endeavors in terms of conservation and um, what I would what I what I perceived as recording family histories? Uh, yes. Yeah, I write. Uh, um, I write books like these. I um, my background is also in land conservation. I've worked in, with nonprofits on environmental issues for years. Um, In fact, my third book coming out is about land conservation. It's called Saving Arcadia, and it's a Great Lakes adventure story about um, saving coastline on Lake Michigan. Um, And I also write, um, I'm a big believer in capturing family history. So I interview family matriarchs or patriarchs and record their life memories and um, preserve that for families and write them up in books. And I also do the same work for nonprofits where I 
capture the 40-year history and the founding of a, of a group and write those up. Wow, that's really neat. Uh, question we like that I like to ask all my guests, Heather, is with all, with all the work that you've done and will do, what legacy are you hoping to leave behind for your children and others to follow? Well, I, I think it's um, a, a kinder world, um, one that we understand each other's needs um, of all ages and that we are willing to open our minds and even consider ideas that might seem a bit topsy-turvy. I think the ability to question things is important, both as parents and, and just as humans in the world. Um, so for, for my parenting side of things, that would be it, and, and helping people have smoother lives, because when your needs are being met and your kids' needs are being met, life is a lot easier. Wonderful. For... For any audience members that wanted to connect with you, what are some ways that they could do that? Um, well, people interested in buying a book, those are available in any bookstore or online, any um, brick-and-mortar bookstore or online bookstore. I have a website, heatherschumaker.com, and I do a lot of speaking around the U.S. and Canada, so people who are interested in having a, a conference or a um, preschool parent education night I do travel around to do that and you can find that on my website and I have a podcast the way you do oh. um, called Renegade Rules which is a weekly podcast on Saturdays and a blog so there's lots of ways Facebook page to get involved okay great well if you could hold the line Heather I'm gonna sign off here and and uh, we can wrap up Thank you for being on the show today, Heather. It was it was a great conversation, and certainly I would encourage anyone in the audience that's going to listen to this to, to check these books out because they, they are great resources and have great ideas on how to interact with children better and, in many cases, with each other better. So thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This was episode 56, and our guest today was author Heather Schumacher. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.